Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello and welcome to My 70s TV Childhood, the podcast that looks back fondly to what it was like growing up in Britain during the 1970s and the central part that television played in our lives then. It was, as most children think about the time that they grew up, a simpler, more innocent time where, in spite of some of the awful things happening in our country, we took comfort as families by sitting on the three-piece suite and sharing the entertainment provided by that wooden box in the corner. Now, things weren't great in 1970s Britain in many respects. The economy was on its knees. We had strikes, the three-day week, the regular humiliations of the English football team. But for me and my friends, it was all about playing out, discovering new things, and having fun, as you'd hope children do in their childhood. It was also about understanding the big wide world and beginning to learn and work out how life itself worked. One of the things we all have to learn about is hygiene and cleanliness. No one is born with a natural aptitude for washing their hands or looking after their own personal hygiene. It's something we are all taught and how clean we are depends on the environment which we're brought up. Now there's one thing I do remember and I'm really quite shocked about it when I look back is that things, and people, could really be quite dirty in 1970s Britain. Where I grew up in the northwest of England, most buildings that had been around for a while were black, and they were black due to 100 years plus of factory smoke and pollution in the atmosphere. But until they started to be cleaned up as they were in the 70s and 80s, we were unaware that under the black coat of pollution... There were some beautiful sandstone buildings, for example, with all sorts of colours in their stonework. I guess we didn't realise that the smoky chimneys, the steam trains and the exhaust fumes of cars running on four-star leaded petrol were so bad until they stopped. I'll never forget seeing a cine film that my uncle Brian had taken of his parents, my grandparents, in the field next to their house in Lee in Lancashire. In the 80s, he transferred all his cine film from the 60s onto video, and the whole family watched it. My childhood memories were of stroking the donkeys in the fields in the fresh air of my grandparents' semi-rural house. But when the film played, the donkeys were still there, but so too were loads of factory chimneys belching smoke into the sky, along with the local colliery in the background. Amazing, really. I don't remember it being like that at all. And people weren't as clean either. The idea of having a shower first thing every morning was alien to most Britons. You had a good wash morning and evening, and once a week you had a bath on bath night. Now presumably that dated from when people literally had to get the tin bath down from the wall and fill it with hot water so that everyone had a bath on the same evening. I 
i.e. bath night. And I think old habits die hard. And the idea that any self-respecting Englishman would wear deodorant or aftershave on a regular basis was, well, quite plainly ridiculous. And what do you think we were? French? It all seems a long way away from today's obsession with being clean and smelling nice and with having ensuite bathrooms in your house. Now, don't get me wrong. I much prefer the fact that people don't smell unpleasant rather than the sweet, musky smell of body odour. But I think it does show that how relatively affluent we've all become and that we've become obsessed by how many bathrooms a house has. I think I might have mentioned this before, but my auntie Polly, well, she was my mother's auntie, so in effect my great-auntie, she had an outside toilet and refused to have one in the house until the mid-70s. She thought the whole idea was unhygienic. I, for one, was great relieved when I could use the toilet inside the house and avoid the dark, spider-ridden outside toilet in the backyard. Our streets and parks were also dirtier. The idea that everyone should throw their rubbish into a litter bin, or take it home with them, was still alien to many in Britain. And the big drive of organisations like Keep Britain Tidy was to try and get us to be more considerate as far as littering was concerned. Oh, and let's not even go there on the amount of dog mess there used to be on Britain's street. Lots of things have changed for the better. So we were a dirtier place with dirtier people and a general lack of cleanliness across our society. But from that, well, let's call it the seedy side of British life, came a couple of comedy classics we're going to remember today. The first started life in the 60s as a one-off TV play written by Ray Galton and Alan Simpson called The Offer, a half-hour script featuring the attempts of Harold, a rag and bone man, to leave his selfish father Albert and seek a brighter future elsewhere. I recently heard a recording of the original episode on the excellent Radio 4 Extra, and it's still a very, very powerful piece, setting up the complex relationship dynamics of a son held back by his elderly father, who in turn fears being left alone. And all of this is played out in a dirty junkyard, full of society's cast-offs, from which Harold and Albert scrape a meagre living. The one-off play was a huge success, and Galton and Simpson were put under pressure from the BBC to develop the idea further into a series. But the writers were reluctant to be tied down, having recently come to the end of almost a decade working with Tony Hancock on Hancock's Half Hour. But after a while, they relented. And in June 1962, Albert and Harold reappeared in what was to become one of the BBC's longest-running and most-loved sitcoms. Steptoe and Son ran from 1962 to the end of 1974, over 57 episodes. It was hugely successful and led to fame for both of its stars. Harry H. Corbett, the H being put in to avoid any confusion with the creator and operator of Sooty, and Wilfred Bramble. Although the series became a bind for both of them as they became increasingly typecast by their small screen personas. 
Obviously, I only got to know the series in the 1970s, but I think that its success was down to a number of factors. Not least the chemistry between the two stars, who were incredibly plausible as father and son. Even though Bramble was only 13 years older than Corbett, but obviously looked about 30 years older. Some observers have said that they grew to loathe each other as the years went by. Harry H. Corbett had been a Shakespearean actor, and part of Joan Littlewood's famous theatre workshop group, but found it impossible to gain any serious roles after the success of Steptoe. And Bramble was an alcoholic, and also a gay man at a time when this was against the law in the UK. Galton and Simpson maintained that the two got on well, and I do hope that was the case, because their on-screen relationship was so powerful. The other reasons why the show was so successful are more obvious. The quality of Galton Simpson's writing, and the situation itself. The tensions between the two characters were never far from the surface, and the writers exploited these perfectly, producing some really dark comedic moments. As well as the opening episode, which I still think is one of the best, there are several others which stick in my mind. A common theme of the show was Harold wanting to demonstrate his intellectual capabilities and his ability to be a a man of learning and culture. And there are several episodes where this ultimately ends in disaster. On one occasion, Harold tells his new bird, their words, not mine, and Harold's new birds being a familiar theme, that he's an accomplished ballroom dancer, despite not knowing a step. It turns out that Albert's a great dancer, and that he and Harold's mother used to dance together a lot. So Albert offers to teach Harold what to do, and they practice, and they really enjoy the experience, which brings them close together. When Harold goes off to a ballroom dancing competition with his new girlfriend, Albert waits nervously at home for them to return. But eventually, only Harold comes home. Tragically, he spends all night treading on his girlfriend's toes, as Albert taught him all the latest steps, and their usual antipathy returns as a result. Another one I remember is the one where Albert's murky past as an adult movie star is revealed. Harold finds an antique What the Butler Saw machine and restores it, offering it to the local vicar to be sold at the next jumble sale. Albert and Harold arrive at the jumble sale to find the machine is at the centre of attention, as the local scout group have discovered an old film, featuring, no less than Albert, in A Night at the Harem. As a result, Albert becomes a local celebrity, and Harold is left cursing his father once again. You dirty old man. The final episode from Christmas 1974 provides a fitting end to the show. Harold wants to go to Switzerland to spend Christmas there, whereas Albert prefers his usual destination of Bognor Regis. Eventually, Albert is persuaded to go, but he refuses to fly, so they agree to sail to Europe. But he needs to get a passport, and in the process, when Harold finds his father's birth certificate, it turns out that Albert is the child of the Muffin Man. And the photo he always thought was of his father is actually one of former Prime Minister William Gladstone. The episode really pulls at the heartstrings as the old man discovers that he isn't who he thought he was. But Harold doesn't mind, and leaves for Europe with his dad. 
Her passport control, however, ironically, it turns out that Harold's passport has expired. So Albert goes off to Switzerland, whereas Harold stays in Bogner. But in a twist, it turns out that that had been Harold's plan all along. And he gets to spend Christmas with his girlfriend and without his old dad. Like many sitcoms of the time, Steptoe and Son was made into two film versions, Steptoe and Son and the sequel, Steptoe and Son Ride Again, which, unusually for these sitcom movies, is, is actually hilarious. And the scripts of all the TV programmes were also re-recorded for radio. The series is also unusual in that all of the known episodes still exist and haven't suffered the fate of many TV shows whose tapes were wiped in the 1970s. Like so many successful sitcoms, they are timeless and have stood the test of time. There may not be many rag and bone men anymore, but there'll always be fathers and sons who have complex relationships that ultimately hold them both back. And that is at the heart of Steptoe's success. So from the Steptoe's East End Yard at Oil Drum Lane, we move to another seedy location, this time in Yorkshire, probably in Leeds, where we come across another rundown establishment presided over by an awkward, miserly, self-opinionated and prejudiced landlord who lets out crumbling bedsits to a group of tenants living slightly disappointing lives. That doesn't sound very funny, does it? Rising Damp is another British comedy classic. It's also another example of seediness and dirt, which reflected a sort of life of the 1970s. Leonard Roster played the landlord Rigsby, who lorded it over a group of rather unfortunate tenants. I suppose that most of the characters were failures in one sense or another, and much of the humour was derived from the bleakness of their position and their various attempts to improve their lot. Rigsby himself was lonely, pompous and a bigot, with only his fluffy cat Vienna to keep him company. Why Vienna? Well, so that when he put the cat out at night, he could say, Good night, Vienna. Yeah. And his tenants included Miss Jones, oh, Miss Jones, played by Francis de la Tour, who was a woman slowly realising that she was becoming what people used to describe as an old spinster, ageing, and alone, but desperate to be loved. Alan, played by Richard Beckinsale, was a medical student, although one who never seemed to progress very quickly or easily, and often found himself just going through the motions. Only Philip, played by Don Warrington, seemed to have something about him, and that provided much of the comic tension between him and Rigsby, who was clearly threatened by the smooth-talking, intelligent man, who also happened to be black. Now, as they say today, some of the attitudes and language used in the programme reflected society at the time, but I do think that Rising Damp was quite brave in reflecting what certain people thought, and it also provided a really helpful way of calling out Rigsby's personal prejudices and showing him how wrong he was to distrust things which were strange to him. 
Much of the humour derived from Rigsby's pomposity towards his tenants and his constant romantic pursuit of Miss Jones. Or also from Rigsby aspiring to be more like Philip, wanting to better himself without letting Philip know how much he admired his qualities. There was also lots of focus on how the small things made a difference. Like I remember an episode which revolved around one of the tenants having their radio playing too loudly and another where Rigsby's conned by a smooth-talking new resident, played by Peter Bowles, who else? It deals in a world where everyone has dreams of bettering themselves and improving their financial or social status, but then find that it's an impossible dream, and that the peeling wallpaper and rising damp of the title is all that they have, both now and in their future. Like Steptoe and Son, Rising Damp is full of pathos. We feel for all of the characters, even Rigsby, living a life which isn't what they thought it was going to be. Eventually, at the end of the show's run, Rigsby appears to have finally convinced Miss Jones to marry him, almost as a sort of admission from both of them that they're not going to find anyone better, and that they weren't the first, or they won't be the last to be in that situation. The wedding day is set, and in true sitcom style, Miss Jones can't go through with it, so doesn't turn up, and Rigsby goes to the wrong church, not realising that Miss Jones hasn't turned up. And in a final scene, they both confess what they've done, and I remember it was really poignant and quite, quite sad. Leonard Roster made Rigsby into one of the great sitcom characters and lifted him from what could have easily been a stereotype of a bigoted, unpleasant landlord to a more complex character with the same weaknesses and foibles that we all have, but sometimes feel uncomfortable about showing. Of course, he was also star of the much-loved Martini ads with Joan Collins and another 70s television classic, The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin, which I personally loved. More about that in a future episode, I think. He also shares a sad distinction of having died way too young, at 57, with Harry H. Corbett. Both of them died before their time, which is really tragic, and we can only imagine what more happy memories they could have provided had they lived longer. So there we are. Two classic British sitcoms, which come from and reflect the seedier side of life. Whilst I wouldn't claim that either Steptoe and Son or Rising Damp was true to life, they do fit into that rather grim, play-for-today type idea that Britain in the 60s and 70s was a tough place, full of lonely people living dull, unimportant, but rather seedy lives. So I think there must be an element of truth in these portrayals. I'm really pleased, by the way, that generally... We are all a bit cleaner and less seedy today, especially in reduced levels of litter, dog mess and body odour that we have to put up with. If you've got any thoughts on seedy sitcoms or indeed anything else we've featured in this podcast, you can get in touch by visiting our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com Leave comments on our Facebook or Twitter pages at My70sTVChildhood and at 70sTVChildhood respectively. Comment on our YouTube page or you can just email me, oliver at My70sTVChildhood.com Well, that's all we've got time for for this episode. So take care, 
Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again soon for more from my 70s TV childhood.